Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Chapter 1. Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waberhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trinsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus. Hmm? You're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I think things like dyslexia and ADHD can be a part of your identity in positive ways without discounting the real negative experiences. On the other side of those challenges are stories of joy, stories of accomplishment, stories that are about potential. I think it's one of the things that I, I could never have guessed at 18 that I would get to do in my life. Dave Flink was lucky. He was diagnosed with dyslexia and ADHD while he was still in grade school. With training and support, he got into an Ivy League college. And once he was there, he helped start a program where college students go into schools to mentor kids with a diagnosis of dyslexia or ADHD. The program is called Eye to Eye, and it's now entering its 20th year. Dave has recently written a book called Thinking Differently that recounts his experience and the experiences of hundreds of others with the same diagnosis. We talked in our Manhattan studio. This is so good to be able to be talking with you today because we're covering, when we talk, I think, today, an angle on communication that we've never touched on before, which is dyslexia. I think when I first heard about dyslexia, all I was aware of was that it had to do with mixing up letters and words, that the words would get scrambled on a page. But it's much more than that, isn't it? It, it is. And I was thinking, as I was sort of heading down here, and when we first met, which was, what, t 10 years ago, yeah. maybe? And we were doing a panel, you probably remember, on dyslexia with scientists. And one of the things that I think came out of that panel was, in fact, exactly what you just said. It's it's not just about switching letters. It's really about learning. Hmm. So when you say it's about learning, what do you mean? It's not, it's more, if it's more than scrambling letters up when you read, do you mean that as somebody, someone is trying to teach you something, you can't keep track of the thoughts the way they're coming at you? You scramble up the sounds coming in the way you scramble up the words when you're reading or the concepts coming in? Yeah, and it's worth going back a bit. So how we started to understand dyslexia and now. Yeah. So you, you, you go back to the beginning of when dyslexia first came about. It came about when we invented the written language. Up when until, you say it came about, you mean people realized that, that it was a thing. It, but it, was it not possible for it to be a thing before that? Yeah. That's, because people were learning things in a, an obstructed way, but they didn't know they had a problem until they tried to read. Exactly. 
Exactly. So when reading was invented, then suddenly there were some people, people who have dyslexia, who did not read particularly well with their eyes. Mm-hmm. And what we started to understand is that those people, when the median of learning was reading, those people were failing. Moral judgments were put upon reading. Um, smart people and good people read with their eyes. And in fact, those people who didn't were somehow defective. Mm-hmm. Now, thankfully, between the invention of the written language and now, we started doing fMRIs on the brain. And what we learned is that, that there are literally different parts of the brain that light up when you have dyslexia and you try and read than um, people who read and don't have dyslexia. And so what's interesting about that is that it means that, yes, uh, reading with your eyes, the written language, is inherently a problem for someone with dyslexia. It also means that the way that that person's brain is lighting up actually leads to different thinking. And mm. so that's why I say it's actually broader than so, just uh, mechanical decoding words on a page. Right. Can you give me an example of different thinking? Yeah. Uh, there's a story I like to tell about one of the first um, eye-to-eye mentors who's dyslexic. So eye-to-eye is your organization, eye-to-eye. Oh, sorry. Where, where yes. you, you help uh, mainly young people with dyslexia? So eye-to-eye is a mentoring program that matches college and high school students with dyslexia and ADD. One of our first mentors, a college student who had dyslexia, has dyslexia. Um, He has grown up, as I sort of have, (laughs) at 39. And he he lives here in New York, actually. And he is the head of phase one research at Sloan Kettering. And that's important because his different thinking brain, his dyslexic brain, has allowed him to start working on ways to cure cancer that other people hadn't thought about. Oh, this is fascinating. How, in what way did that happen? So... As not the scientist, I will try my best to explain what Dr. (laughs) David Hyman is doing. Right. Um, But from my understanding, uh, for years, they were trying to cure cancer based on its location, right? So if you had cancer in the lungs or you had cancer in the pancreas, they they called it that, right? Mm. And what he realized is it's actually about the mutations. So a mutation in the lungs or a mutation in the pancreas could actually be similar. And so we could actually cure two types of cancer at the same time by aiming for the mutation. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if that's because he's dyslexic. He's also just brilliant. But I think there is something interesting, and I've seen this played out time and time and time again with a huge community of dyslexic thinkers where the world is thinking you do it this way, and for whatever reason, a dyslexic mind comes to a different conclusion, a conclusion that actually is something we all appreciate. So in a way, you're enabled by dyslexia to come at it from a different angle, and that may be a critical step. It's a creative way to approach any problem and not be stuck with the way the problem presents itself to you. If you can get around that interface where that's difficult, the blockade, and come in from the side. That's right. You you have an advantage. So it sounds like there actually could be an advantage to having dyslexia. Yeah, and, and, and I would actually just say that dyslexia... And ADHD too, which is just an attention difference. Mm. Um, like, do they come together often? About forty percent of the time. Uh. Uh, they are contextual, so um, they have strengths and weaknesses. For instance, um, like we use the example of the dyslexia, right? You can either struggle with reading, or you might cure cancer. 
Both mm-hmm. of those things can be true. Same thing can be said for folks with ADHD. Uh, in school, I don't know about for you, but I know f- for me, a good student often sat still for eight hours a day. Mm. You got a gold star if you could do that. Now, in That's the wor- also a torture when you're, in, when you're captured by the other forces. <laughs> that is right. That is exactly right. <laughs> and that is why you see kids who have a different um, orientation to learning get punished. Yeah. Because they're really bad at that. Sure. Um, and as long as they can get through... And this is what eye to eye provides, and I can explain a bit more about how we help them get through. But as long as we can get kids through school, we see people with ADHD fly and come up with really creative ideas. So my inability to sit still and focus on one thing for a period of time is also my ability to juggle multiple things for a period of time. Uh. I was just listening to my second favorite podcast, uh, <laughs> yes. How I Built This. I don't know oh, if yes. you ever- no, I, I haven't heard about it. I hear it's great. It's a really fun uh, and interesting podcast. And I was listening to it just the other day, and there was a guy on it, um, David um, Nealman, who started JetBlue, who has ADHD. Mm. And his story was very much an ADHD story. He struggled in school, and then he got out in the real world, and his ability to juggle all these different ideas and essentially create an airline that, at the time- really hadn't been done, uh, a relatively inexpensive ticket that still had good service. Everyone thought that wasn't possible. And his ADHD brain connected a bunch of dots and said, oh, yeah, we can do that. And Richard Branson has dyslexia. Richard Branson. Apparently very severe. Yep. Uh, Chuck Schwab, uh, Whoopi Goldberg, uh, Steven Spielberg. Henry uh, Winkler. Henry Winkler. Yeah. There's There's a laundry list of really successful and notable people um, who I think have enriched my life and probably yours as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, there are statistics we don't talk about, which is if you have dyslexia and ADHD, you're twice as likely to drop out of school. 40% of our prison population is illiterate or has a learning disability. So I think about the one in five people who have learning and attention issues as an incredible opportunity for us, for all of us. Um, wasting about, talent. So what do you do at Eye to Eye? How do you help young people? So I think it's worth rooting it in a story and failure. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Good. That's the best kind of story. That's right. So 20 years ago, almost to date, uh, I was starting as a freshman at Brown University. I really didn't have any role models who had gone to college who learned and thought like I did. And I thought somehow maybe I had slipped through the cracks and I just wasn't going to tell anybody. Mm. And so I went to Brown and uh, quite quickly realized that there were actually people who got into college who learned and thought like I did. And all of us had the same story. We wish we had known one person in our life who had dyslexia or had ADHD and had made it to college because we had all these heroes, but they were really far to reach. I mean, I've had the pleasure of meeting Richard Branson and Chuck Schwab and Whoopi Goldberg, but none of those people were available to come mentor me, it turned out. <laughs> they weren't next door. They weren't next door, you know? And so we thought, you know, we're 18, we're in college. Maybe we could be those people that we never had. And um, here's the failure part. So we organized, that was good. We found community, that was good. And then we went to the local elementary school and we literally said, 
Like show us your show us your dyslexic kids. You they know where are they? They didn't know they had any. Well, they did know they had any, but like we didn't know what we were going to do once we got there. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we had gotten as far in the plan as go to the school. Yeah. And thank God there was a teacher there, Maureen Kenner, who was like, "Here they are. They're right here. What are you going to do?" We we're like, "We don't know. We don't know." <laughs> uh, and so the first day, we sat there and we kind of looked at each other, and um. We made a lot of mistakes. Uh, we started tutoring them, which I think was the first mistake because these kids didn't need fixing and implied in tutoring is that we're trying to fix something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we quickly moved to what is now called a social emotional learning curriculum. And that was teaching kids about resiliency, about um, grit, about metacognition, thinking about thinking, understanding how their mind works, mm. um, empowering them once they knew how their mind worked to be able to advocate for what they needed. So for instance, my first mentee, like, like me, struggled with reading. And I said, well, you know, you can read with your ears. He's like, you can? I said, yeah, you can, you can get, at the time it was called tapes. Remember those? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know you're a millennial, so yeah, I'm not, I know yeah. I'm the oldest millennial. <laughs> the oldest millennial. Yeah. Um, but I said, yeah, you can, you can have books on tape. Now kids obviously use their iPod and can download things all the time. And I said, you yeah. can read with your ears. So. If you know that about your brain, metacognition, if you have enough self-esteem, which I can give you because I learn and think like you do, so immediately I can imbue some self-esteem on my mentee, you can ask for that accommodation, a book on tape. And now literally his grades went from, from failing grades to A's. And more importantly, he was happy. Part of it sounds to me like knowing it's okay to be dyslexic. Yeah, I would go a step further even to say, it's okay to have it part of your identity. And I think things like dyslexia and ADHD can be a part of your identity in positive ways without discounting the real negative experiences. Um, And one of the things that's just been a joy for me is I I don't think that I was a particularly good mentor. I was okay. Um, What I see now in this work of this nonprofit eye to eye 20 years in I see young people doing the work better than I ever did. Well, what do you think makes a good mentor? Um, So first off, you have to get through the shame. That they feel? Yeah. Uh, You have to, if you're going to show up and step into a kid's life, you need to be able to have a sense already of your own experience and to feel some pride around wherever you are, how you got there, and recognize that you have something to give. And so I see, we now have thousands of mentors across the country, and I see these young people doing things that I was not confident enough to do. So I often, even though I knew I was mentoring a kid who learned and thought like I did, I was scared to even use words like dyslexia. Mm. And now they show up wearing t-shirts that say, you know, <laughs> dyslexic and proud, and you know, they wear ADHD on their sleeve. And um, you know, that is just, it takes such courage and such bravery. And I should mention, you know, we don't compensate our mentors, uh, we, they're busy students, you know, particularly now that we work with high school students too. Uh, these young people are changing the lives of uh, kids across the country selflessly and nobly and around something that has often been a challenge for them. There are 2.4 million kids in America in our public schools that have identified learning and attention issues. So at eye to eye, we have a lot of work ahead of us, even mm-hmm. though we've done a lot of work that we're very proud of. 
Um, the good news is that we actually do know now how to help them. And I think that's what the science is so exciting for me. I know you and I both share a love of science and a curiosity of science. Um, so I am unpacking this in real time as the science is becoming more available to us. And so one of the things that's been interesting, we just completed a three-year um, study with uh, UCSF Brain Lens Lab. And they were looking at kids who had dyslexia and ADHD. They were looking at kids who had dyslexia and ADHD that were in eye to eye. And they were looking at kids without learning and attention issues. And if you looked at just middle school, you would see things like depression. And you would see that, I mean, kids without learning disabilities often have an uptick of depression. But kids with learning disabilities in school, their depressive symptoms highly increased just by being in school. And you could tell it's just because they weren't well, getting... Well, there must be tremendous pressure on them, and, then, and they can't meet the demands. That's right. And then you could look at eye to eye, which was interesting for us, because it's not like we had made a focus on depression. And we would see that just by having a mentor in a kid's life who learned and thought like they did, their depressive symptoms were suppressed. And then if you looked to other parts of the research, you would see that their self-esteem went up. Mm. And of course, those things are very related. And if you ask them, do you feel connected and in community? You would see that in eye to eye, these kids felt a community. I heard you tell a story once that was so interesting. First of all, the story started with you getting a government piece of paper or a card that said you were dyslexic. What? What is that? <laughs> I, don't, I don't. I never heard of that. <laughs> not, not quite. It was close. It was close. Uh, so uh, I realized that I think there was a test, unintentional test, being done by our government to find people specifically. It wasn't so much about the dyslexia, but the ADHD. And this test goes like this. I can ask you the test, and we'll see if you pass. Are you ready? <laughs> yes. So I'm bad at tests. I hate tests. That's number. Actually, that's step one. If you're worried about the test, <laughs> that's step one. So okay, that, okay. I'm at your disposal. Okay, so uh, step one, I, I don't actually know. Do you have a driver's license? Yes. Okay. Have you ever lost your driver's license? No. Okay. So you already probably are not part of what I call the one in five LDADHD republic. Well, you all lose your driver's license? I think you have a higher tendency, <laughs> but that's not the full test. So step one is if you've lost it. Step two, if you also lost the other form of government ID that you were required to have in order to get your driver's license, which was the case for me, then you may, it's not an official test, but then you may have ADHD. Because what happens with ADHD is that truly your mind works in such a way that holding on to things like a government-issued ID is not what you're good at. You are good at lots of things. That is not one of them. So I take it that's the social security card you got to have? Correct. If you lose your driver's license. And the story— which, So how do, you, how do you get over that problem? So the rest of the story, which was actually a really nice one— So you have to go get your—just for anyone who has had this problem, you have to get your Social Security card, and then you can get your driver's license, and then you can drive. So I went down to the Social Security office, and I was living here in New York, actually. It's just a couple of blocks from here. Big, scary brick building, uh, exactly where you want all the Social Security cards kept— and I'm about to walk in, and I will tell you, even though I'm fully an adult, I still freaked out because it's a test. I knew I was going to have to go there and fill out some forms. And these are the things that I am not good at. And I have a history of knowing that I'm not good at that. I'm yeah. good at other things. 
And so I'm sitting on the street about to go into this building and I pick out my cell phone and I call my mom because there's no age in which calling mom for help is inappropriate. <laughs> and I call, she, she talked you down? She did. She gave me the thing I needed. She said, David, relax. You're going to be okay. I love you. Mm. I believe in you. Mm. And I always think about it like a little self-esteem piggy bank. I was broke. <laughs> and she just put a little self-esteem in there. And then I could go into the office, get past the form, which I was scared to fill out. And, you know, little things like I was born in Phoenix. I'm dyslexic. I was born in Phoenix. Seriously? <laughs> like, <laughs> like so, what, what, what letters would you rather have than the word Phoenix? I mean, can we get rid of the PH already? It's F. <laughs> <laughs> and there's so many vowels. Uh, they come in the wrong order. They come in the wrong order. X, do we still need that letter? I mean, it's just, it was torture for a dyslexic to be born in Phoenix. <laughs> well, that could be one of your great tasks is to rewrite our, our alphabet. That's my next bit Make of work. Make it easier for everybody. Yeah. So so you got you got past the word Phoenix. And I then got what? past the word Phoenix. I fill out the form. I sit down. And this is when I have this thought about community. And this is why I created this little test of my own, which is if, in fact, people with ADHD tend to lose things more often, then, in fact, looking around this room, there should be more people like me. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a very creative thought. And I felt really good, Alan. Yeah. I felt so good about just the idea that I wasn't alone. Uh -huh. And the story progresses in that somebody... You, somebody actually came in, right, who had the same problem, and you helped that person through. And they were smarter than me because I called my mom, got some self-esteem, and then kind of worked my way through it. This gentleman who walked in came into the office, first thing, turns around on his heels and says, can anyone help me fill out this form? Uh, and I said, oh, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> that was such a better idea. What a concept. And I helped him fill out the form. And I'll tell you, each question that I helped him fill out, he had a question for me about how did I know how to do this stuff? Mm. How you know, did you know how to do it? How did you get to the point that you could fill out a form like that? So the answer is, I, as I was filling out the form, I learned a lot about him. And our generational difference matters. So when I asked him when he was born, and I think it was like 1765. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and they were still letting him drive. And they were still letting him drive. He would ask me the question you just, just asked me how do you know how to fill out this form? And the answer is, I was very lucky. So um, while I didn't have the time to explain it all to him, I can explain it to you. Uh, first through fifth grade was a struggle, but I got identified knowing that I had dyslexia and ADHD. That didn't happen for him. Mm. That's number one. He learned later. By that point, he had already dropped out of school. Mm. From fifth through eighth grade, I was able to go to a school specifically for kids with learning and attention issues. And they taught me a different way to read. It's called phonemic awareness, um, multisensory instruction, as opposed to whole language, which is what we predominantly do in our schools. And I still read slowly and spell probably closer to an eighth grade level when I started at a third grade level, but I could fill out a government issued form. Moving on, I had self-esteem. I had a sense that I needed accommodations like spell check. I think I was the first kid with a laptop ever. And this is like the early 90s. Um, I learned I needed allies. And so I had this whole training that happened that this guy didn't have.
When we come back, I share with Dave Flint some of my own anxieties, and he gives advice to parents whose sons or daughters show signs of having learning difficulties. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Chapter 1. Wayfair welcomes you to the neighborhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the neighborhood," she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trinsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. This is Clear and Vivid. And now back to my conversation with Dave Flink, who picks up on his point that identifying his problem was the key to overcoming it. You know, as you describe this, I think in a personal way that when I know I have a problem I have to get around, things go so much better than if I am only vaguely aware of the problem and feel bad that I'm not accomplishing what I want to accomplish. And I get anxious and and angry. Whereas if I just am able to say, oh, I I know what the problem is. You know, I'm curious, Alan, as you say that, when you think about the anxious piece or the the part that's that's an emotional piece to the reaction of how do I get through this? Yeah. What what allows you to get past that? Because that's the stumbling block, I think, that all of us face, regardless of whether you have a label or not. Because we were talking a bit before we started about Literally, it took four people to get me here today on time, dressed appropriately, without, you know. And, and those are, that's like my team yeah. of people who understand my weaknesses and support me despite them. Yeah. And I'm curious for you, I'm sure, I mean, this is, I think, a very human experience. We all have weaknesses. Yeah, I, I find I benefit a lot from knowing I did it before and I can do it again. So experience helps. Encouragement helps. When I leave the apartment to go out and accomplish something or perform or do this podcast. The last thing I hear before I leave the apartment is Arlene's voice saying, you're going to be great. That actually has a very important effect on me. You know, every time you hear it a thousand times, you can't help smiling when you hear it. It's almost a joke, but at some level, it buoys me up. So that, that encouragement, that that, that takes away some of the uh, anxiety, I think. And I think that's half the issue for all of us. 
I think curiosity helps me. Do you find this with um, dealing with people with dyslexia? Uh, since I was diagnosed with Parkinson's, I find myself ruled more by my curiosity about it than I am by the negative effects of it. I think you're exactly right. I think curiosity is a great um, instructor of life. I would also suggest that community is, yeah, and yeah. I, I hear that in the story of Arlene, but I, I recently listened to the interview you did with some of your old friends and colleagues from MASH. Yeah. And what I heard in that interview was so much love and fun mm. and joy. And I can only imagine while you were, you know, making that show, but also it sounds like in the many years following how you all stayed in touch, that that gave you all the strength to continue to do great things. It did because as much fun as it was, it was hard work, you know, 15 hours a day or more. And you get tired and cranky, but we had one another to rely on, to lean on. And it took effort, by the way. It wasn't automatic. It took effort for us to, to learn to work together to learn to be together those long hours and put up with one another's idiosyncrasies. But we worked on that because we knew it was important to do that, to be able to get good results. So there's a human, there's a human element involved in all of this. I hear, I hear from you. It's not just, it's not a paternalistic pat on the head, you're going to be fine. That's right. It's genuine caring that's communicated from one person to another. The way you helped that guy at the Social Security office, that that was a genuine extension of yourself to him, to another person who could use the help. That's right. And, you know, I have an incredible joy and gift that has been given to me through the work that I do both at Eye to Eye, but also now as an author. And the pages of my book, which is so ironic that a dyslexic would write a book— <laughs> But those stories are connective tissue. And so when I get to travel the country, and I just got in from literally Dallas uh, last night, and I've only been to Dallas a couple of times, and I showed up there, and people immediately came up to, hugged me, strangers, mm. which is a weird experience if you're not comfortable with it. And I'm more than comfortable with it now because what I've learned is, um, whether it be the stories of my book or the stories that are shared by our mentors to the kids, these are these are common stories. These are stories of, of the human condition. These are stories about learning challenges. These are stories about misunderstanding. But on the other side of those challenges are stories of joy, stories of accomplishment, um, stories that are about potential. And I think it's one of the things that I, I could never have guessed at 18 that I would get to do in my life. And, and not just me. Um, you know, it's worth noting, uh, you know, on the other side of this glass wall that is our studio, uh, my uh, best friend and also the president of IDI came to just support me today. Mm. His name is Marcus Sutra. He's an incredible human being. Um, I think it must be going well. I haven't seen him cry much. Yeah, so far so good. He's giving yeah. us a thumbs up. So I, <laughs> maybe that's to you. I'm not sure if it's to me. Uh, oh, both of us. We got two thumbs up. And, you know, he's a really busy guy. But he came today to just have my back. Yeah. And that's what we do across the country. Um, and I think that that is something that is getting more and more lost. We think a, 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 a throwaway like on a social media post is enough. And sometimes it's about showing up. Along those lines, do you find that when a college kid mentors a high school kid, that that high school kid 
winds up mentoring a, a young person afterwards? Is that common? It, it is common and is also a message that we send. Uh, uh, we realize that intentions matter. And so we help our mentors understand that uh, this is not a time to be humble. Uh, it is okay to say towards the end of your mentoring relationship, hey, you know what? Uh, I need you to pay it forward. Mm. So I showed up and I made sure that your journey was a positive one. Uh, you now know how to succeed in school and hopefully to succeed in life. So when you're a little bit older, your job is to go back to this classroom and do the same thing. And we've had these really amazing stories where we'll go to visit a, like a high school where we're, we're teaching the mentors just a bit about how we use the curriculum. It's an art-based curriculum. Not every um, you know, mentor is prepared to do that. We teach them on how to use the curriculum. And we'll say, have, have any of you experienced this work before? And inevitably, there'll be a couple of hands that are raised now. And oh, they'll that, say, So oh, it's really spread. Yeah. You have plenty of work to do helping dyslexic kids, but do you ever think that this, this sounds like it could be useful for everybody? Why, why wouldn't schools regularly help all students develop this kind of self-esteem and sense of self, self-worth and ability and that kind of thing? Could it be extended to that? We're starting to understand that what we do at Eye to Eye is really not just about the one in five kids who learn differently, but to your point, it's about changing school culture. Um, and, and so we actually have sort of three levels of work we do. Uh, we do work where we do this mentoring that we've described. Uh, we also do work where we go into schools and teach exactly the same skills um, that our mentors know to the broader community. So we help parents, we help teachers, we help students who are in the four and five bucket, meaning they don't necessarily have the label of a learning and attention issue, but yes, could use a little extra self-esteem, a little mm. better sense of their own metacognition. So we help change that school's culture. And we also have some, some free or relatively inexpensive tools that can be disseminated across the school. So we have a free app uh, that you can download on the iTunes store called Empower, Eye to Eye Empower. And it's sort of the same journey that our mentors provide that any kid can download. Mm. Um, obviously, the book that I wrote was a tool for parents to be able to understand what that experience might be for their kid, but for all kids. So I, I agree. I think, I, I am happy to say, I think there'll come a day when eye to eye will no longer exist. Because Maybe. it's integrated into mm -hmm. the system. Tell me about the idea that you mentioned early on, th this idea that everybody has a different way of learning or, or there are so many different ways of learning. That sounds, it's a little radical because most of us think that there's one way to learn and, and any other way is a, an aberration. What I've, what I've been reading about and learning about from researchers is that there, in fact, are tons of different ways to learn. And this idea that there's kind of one way that's best for a person isn't exactly true. So I can tell you, like, for myself, in general, if you wanted me to learn something, I would probably prefer to make it a conversation hmm. than a written book. Hmm. That's, that, a, that's a very good example. That's a, but that's a very general idea. Most textbooks that I came in contact with, they may be different now, but when I was in school, most textbooks were written from the top down. These are the things I want you to know. 
It's not my responsibility that the author of the textbook, it's not my responsibility to make them especially interesting to you. It doesn't matter to me where you came from. These are the things I want you to know. It's your job to squeeze them into your head somehow. Right. That leaves out the most important element is the person you're trying to talk to, to communicate with, to teach, is the one who's got to get it. And that's, that's, and that's why I wrote a book. I mean, I remember sitting down thinking, why would I write a book, right? Like, it's not something that I have dreamed about. It's not something that I felt particularly passionate about. But what I recognized is, while I like to learn sitting down and having a conversation with someone, that is, number one, not the way that everybody likes to learn. Number two is, that is not necessarily scalable. Mm. And so what I did in sitting down and writing this book, I said, I need to make a collection of stories. These are broad lessons that I gathered from thousands and thousands of interviews. And every word in this book was in many ways written, you know, other people were holding my hand, uh, mentors from other communities, people different than me. We tried to find the similarities. And it was the boiling up of those similarities that allowed us to be successful. Mm. Um, that's the stories of that journey. You know, what I, I remember there was an experience actually across the street at NPR. Um, I was going over there to do the author's corner. I don't know if you ever went on the author's corner with some of your so. books. Uh, I didn't know what it was. And so- What is it? Uh, well, it turns out that it's literally just you reading your book for like three minutes. Oh my God. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> I did, you, did you know that before you went in? No, ADHD. I just stepped in impulsively <laughs> and said, yes, I didn't look to what it was. Uh, and so, so how did that go? So I, I went there and I had done a ton of press around the book. And so I was used to questions and just kind of having a conversation like we're having. And I said, okay, I'm really excited to do this. And, you know, they put the headphones on and the microphone and the whole thing. And they, and they just slide this sheet of paper in front of me. Hi. And uh, it's not even my book. They said, <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, they said, we read your book. We love it. I said, great. They said, we made a mashup of your book. I said, what's a mashup? And they said, well, we cut different parts of the book together. So, you'll, so the listener will get kind of a summary of it. And I said, well, so, because I should mention, I memorized a passage because I'd been asked enough to read out loud, uh, which is just not something my dyslexic brain is good at. Yeah. I said, I'm going to need a moment with this. And they said, you can't just read it. And I said, I'm the same dyslexic guy who wrote this book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still dyslexic. Uh, and I said, how long does this usually take? And they said, well, you know, uh, We'll need, you know, 30 minutes or an hour, but it's like a really short clip. We'll just have you read it a bunch of times. And I said, well, in school, when I was asked to read with my eyes, I got extended time. That was an accommodation. Oh, great. So I said, you're going to have to call your families. I'm really sorry. You're going to be late for dinner tonight because I get extended time. <laughs> <laughs> and so these poor people, I'm sure they were just like wishing that they could get home. And it took us about twice as long as your average guest. See, but that's so important that you know that it takes longer and you don't beat yourself up because you take longer. You, just, you know in advance and it's just built into the budget. Okay, so let's get really practical. A parent suspects that their kid is dyslexic, maybe combined with ADHD. What should they do? How, what, what, when, if, when they become aware that this is a pro possibility, what should they do? Maybe, first of all, how do they recognize it? Yep. And then what do they do? So the, the first thing I'll say, and 
for parents who don't necessarily know, maybe are listening to this in the first time even hearing these words, mm. um, these are not scary words. Uh, and the school system, if you advocate for your kid to get tested, the school system is required to ultimately provide that testing. And I remember the schools were asking my family to test me, and my parents were scared to have me tested because they were worried about what those labels might mean. So there's nothing scary about the labels. It is worth getting tested. Mm. Nothing's going to happen. The world is not going to explode, right? So you start by getting those labels. Mm. Immediately thereafter, I've also found families don't want to talk to their kids about it. Talk to your kids about it, especially if there's nothing scary about it. Mm. Um, it's a huge community. So telling your kids uh, that there are lots of people like them is step two. Yeah. So identify there's a community. And then step three is actually putting kids on a journey to find out how to own their learning. And whether that be going to the school and saying, we need an eye-to-eye -eye chapter in our community. We also have speakers that you can come, that you can ask us to, to bring into the school. You, again, you can download the app. You need to get informed. Um, for parents, I'd also recommend there's a really wonderful website that Eye-to-Eye, -Eye, among 14 other organizations, helped create called Understood. It's understood.org. And it's a resource just for parents to get informed. So the kids need to get informed. The parents need to get informed. And then it's an exciting journey, like really exciting, to help kids at a young age feel that this is going to be the world opening to them. There's nothing better than that. I know. I have a granddaughter who's very dyslexic. And her mom made sure that she was in a school where she learned to advocate for herself and knows exactly what are her strong points and what she has to work around and couldn't be more cheerful about it. Yeah. She's happy with her life and feels when you talk to her, you, you know you're talking to a very confident person. And it's just part of her identity. Yeah. It's part of what her life is. Yeah. How, how she approaches life. She works around the problems that, that, I, that I don't have. I have other problems. I have a fuzziness sometimes that comes over my thinking. I, I don't know what causes it, but I, I recognize it now. And, I, and I, I'm probably, my brain is working on something else or something like that. And, I, and, then, and then it clears up and I'm, I've managed to get things done I didn't know I could get done. It's but, about the end result, right? Yeah. You got to recognize the problem and say, that's, that's just what I got to work around. When I went to HarperCollins, I got five offers from different publishers. And the reason I chose HarperCollins is they kept, all these other publishers were telling me about the things they were going to help me do. And mm. I went to HarperCollins and said, I don't need help with storytelling. I needed people to spell check and grammar. And HarperCollins committed to giving me twice as many people as probably anybody in the history of all their book contracts. And I said, okay, y'all are my people. Now, how did you learn? We just have a minute or so left. I'm getting getting waved at from the control room. We're having such a good conversation, it's taking longer than it should. But how did you learn to tell a story? Because you process thoughts in different sequences, right? I mean, it isn't part of dyslexia the way you process a series of thoughts. How did that, that doesn't work so well if you're telling a story. How did you learn to tell a story? My grandfather was a barber. If you ever spent time in barbershops, you learned that you know how to tell a story. You don't exist in old school barbershops unless you know how to tell a story. Yeah. So I should say, and, and maybe it's even more true for people who, who are outside the box, mm. uh, our job, it's not fair, but our job when you are in a minority 
is to learn how to tell your story across difference. Mm. And so, yeah. but I also recognize if I was going to go into a school, because I was only in the special school for kids with learning disabilities for a short time. If I was going to go into a school and get my teachers on my side, I needed to learn how to tell my story. Mm. And it couldn't be accusational. It couldn't be in an angry way. It had to be with love. Because yeah. I knew that those teachers did love me. They did want to teach me. So that's how I learned how to tell my story. That's so great. We usually wrap up our shows with seven quick questions, which you probably have heard before. Do you mind answering the questions? Fire away. I think we'll have fun. What do you wish you really understood? How can we make the human experience one about love mm. and understanding? What do you wish other people understood about you? That I am fallible and um, have plenty of flaws. And uh, the journey that I've been on has been one that is supported by many. What's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? I remember being asked once, why do I feel so much? I remember thinking that was so strange. <laughs> they asked you why you feel. Why do I feel so much? And I thought to myself, I don't think you feel enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's why. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. How do you stop a compulsive talker? So I have a strategy I have been using for a long time that I think works. Put one finger up in the air mm. and then say, I'm going to need five minutes. Mm. And it's going to need to come up soon. <laughs> <laughs> you actually say that. Yeah. You can also walk away if you no longer care, but I'm assuming that you do want to continue yeah. the conversation. Yeah. Okay. Is there anyone for whom you just can't feel empathy? I know in my life there are many times that I'm not proud of where I did not feel empathy, mm. but I know my job is to make sure that I always, no matter what, attempt to feel empathy for those that I mm. perhaps don't fully understand. How do you like to deliver bad news, in person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? <laughs> it has to be in person. It has to yes, be. Whether you like it or not. Whether you like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> what, if anything, would make you end a friendship? I think if we stop listening to each other, I think that's, that's the deal breaker for me. Well, I've sure enjoyed listening to you. That's been great. Thanks so much, Dave. This was and great fun. Great good luck with your work. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. For more information about the Alda Center, please visit aldacenter.org. Dave Flink's latest book, Thinking Differently, is an incredible resource for parents who are starting out on the journey of having a kid who learns differently. His organization, Eye to Eye, has also created a free app. It's called Eye to Eye Empower, and it's for students to have a fun learning adventure about what is right with their differently thinking brains. The app is available now through the iTunes Store. 
You can find out more about Dave Flink and the many resources provided by i to i by going to the i to i website at i2inational.org. And for parents and educators, you can find information on this website about how to invite i to i to your local school community. This episode was produced by Graham Shedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. And our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, essential central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.